all CEOs, me included, we don't actually know what we're doing. They're all sharks, so all you got to do, though, is no shark bait. I don't think we've ever talked about this before. <laughs> we can capture all of the wallet share. First place you start is with the product. That's just the first nut. This is the Capital Stack. Hey, everybody, this is David Paul, the host of the Capital Stack podcast, where I talk to founders, entrepreneurs, and investors about all things value creation and startups. Today, I am speaking to partner Austin Poole of BIP Ventures, based out of Atlanta. BIP Ventures is a platform uh, with hundreds of millions of dollars under management, both in credit and in equity. Uh, focused on several different areas uh, with a great track record. Austin, how you doing? Good. Excited to be here. I want to do something real quick. Um, sure. I want to talk about. I want to talk about this picture that our listeners are not going to be able to see, but our YouTube people are. Um, hopefully, it comes up soon. But what are you? Ah, there it is. Oh, God. Um, <laughs> I was waiting in suspense. I was like, yeah. That be a picture of me. So what, what did the photographer tell you? Like, <laughs> like for that pose? I, I think it was something along the lines of try to be as uncomfortable as possible <laughs> and act as unnatural as possible. Yeah, and for the listeners, this is a picture of Austin in a, you know, very Atlanta, you know, I feel like you're like in some kind of plantation of some kind, um, like wooden bookshelf behind you, beautiful blazer, pocket square with his thumb, just so ever gently supporting his head from his chin. Um, no one's ever been in that position ever. No, I was going to say, would you believe it's the first time I've been in that position? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is, I mean, I was just like, wow. I mean, that is powerful. Um, yeah, it's, something. <laughs> it's something. I love it. I'd love a copy to put in my office if you've got an extra, if you've got an extra one. Um, okay. Use the snipping tool. Take a screenshot. <laughs> uh, Austin, what, you just made partner. Tell me about that. Tell me about the firm. And I know you were, you know, one of the first kind of handful of 10 investors there and yeah. tell us about your story. Yeah, no. Um, so the, the story begins <laughs> before, um, I actually joined BIP, um, on this side of the table. I originally got to know, um, Mark Buffington, who's the founding partner. Um, I got to know Mark and the, the current team that was there, um, when I was at a, a tech platform, doing sales and biz dev um, that they were the primary backer of. And so I got to know Mark through the uh, board function there and, frankly, just kind of stayed in touch. Um, I, despite spending that brief stint of time at a early-stage tech business, um, I went more into the traditional financial services institutional investing path. Um, few different steps in that path, but ultimately ended up spending a fair amount of time at a private credit shop, um, putting together proprietary debt products for private equity roll-ups. 
you know, stuff that really gets your blood going. Yeah, um, boring. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, bit repetitive. Um, really interesting. You, you see a lot of really amazing ways that uh, family businesses have been making lots of money in this country for a really long time. Um, it, lots of fun stories. But, uh, yeah, pretty repetitive process. No real um, interest or engagement with the actual business, right? And then sometimes, you know, the, the, the buyer's putting the business in harm's way with how they're capitalizing it. Um, but it was good, good, uh, good proving ground for kind of cutting my teeth from a finance and investing perspective. But I uh, was looking to leave that shop um, and get back onto the kind of the equity and business building side of things. Um, was either going to go into kind of more of the, like the growth equity uh, investing side of things or go back into, you know, an earlier stage business. Um, ended up, I got a job offer from a great growth equity firm um, here in Atlanta and called, promptly called Mark, who I was still in touch with to, you know, basically get kind of like a little bit of like a background check on the folks I was going to go work with. It was supposed to be like a five minute, like, oh yeah, those guys are great. Have fun. Let's get lunch when you're back in town. Uh, turned into like a, a couple hour conversation in which he uh, informed me of, you know, the places he was taking BIP and how he didn't know that I was leaving my, my, uh, my current employer and ended with me uh, rescinding my offer uh, or my acceptance from the other firm and landing at BIP. So um, that was a little while ago. Uh, like you said, there was about, I think, eight of us. Um, on the team there. We're at about 45 now. And we're currently deploying capital out of our sixth anchor fund. And so tell me, how, how is that 45 like devised? Like, what is workflow? Yeah. How do you operationally do that? Yeah. yeah, so I think we've got 16 heads on the investment team. Um, we've got five on our performance engineering team. You could think of it kind of like operating partners that a private equity firm would have, except it's set up more as like a resource center to be accessed on like a pull basis, as opposed to like operating partners get pushed into businesses. Mm -hmm. um, <coughs> but we basically, we were scaling and, uh, you know, one of the things we were kind of looking around and we were like, okay, what's, what's something that we can do that would actually kind of uh, create additional value within our portfolios? And one of the things was, well, we invest, we always partner kind of in the same, you know, uh, part of a company's growth journey. And there's a lot of similar, you know, problems being solved at that point in time. So let's get a couple of former operators from within our portfolio that have exited and put them in a position to kind of have you know, one-on-one -on -one relationships with the various management teams in our portfolio. So, uh, ample people on that team. Um, we've got our back office, as you mentioned, we have a credit product, um, as well. Um, and so our back office is fairly large relative to your typical firm. Um, and then, uh, we actually have an in-house development team. We, <coughs> we build all of our own software that we run our business on. Um, <laughs> nice. Just in yeah. case you weren't busy enough, right? Yeah, like, yeah. let's build products. Uh, you know, why not? <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, that's that's kind of it. And so, how do you how do you devise off 
the BIP investment focuses, right? I think there's a couple of different pods or teams in, yeah. you know, in, the, in the healthcare team. So how, how does that work? Yeah, so I lead our healthcare group. Um, and, uh, and then we've got uh, another partner, Mark Buffington, the founding partner, who also is heavily involved in the healthcare side. So my, my team's just healthcare. Mark's team's about 50% healthcare, 50% enterprise. Um, and then our other two partners um, are a little broader. Um, still, everybody's B2B software and tech-enabled services, um, but Dan Dreschel and Paul Ifaldano are um, they're covering you know two to four kind of verticals, mostly more focus on business model and stage. Got it. And so, yeah, and from a stage perspective, are you would you guys classify yourselves as just primarily Series A players? I'd say anything before Series A and earlier, right? Yeah. So, got it. Um, we certainly don't do a ton of pre-revenue, but we have done it, right? Mm-hmm. So I can't I can't say that we don't do that. Um, but it's not it's not in the middle of fairway or you know right down right. the middle um, for us. Um, but yeah, we we really feel like uh, you know coming our our sweet spot is coming in as a lead when a business has kind of. Um, product market fit that we can kind of independently verify, right, um, through mm-hmm. our networks. Um, that's that's it. Um, and then the way that we're set up, the way our LP base is set up, we can be the primary capital provider pretty much all the way through to the company's exit, um, which is a little different. <clears throat> a lot of folks are um, stage-focused. We're stage-focused on the entry point, <clears throat> um, but then we have the capacity um, and kind of the history of continuing to fund um, our partnerships all the way through to their ultimate exit. Um, certainly don't have to be the mm-hmm. primary uh, capital provider. It, it, it creates a pretty efficient, right? You're not bringing another person in and, you know, you can kind of keep valuation sensible. You don't need to like have this like narrative bias where like, oh, we got to get the next big round. It's got to be 10 when you really need three. Yeah, that, that's, that's it. Like I, I would say it creates flexibility. Um, for our partners um, because there's absolutely situations where, you know, maybe we led the A round and um, the business is kind of circling back and you're right. It's kind of like, it's kind of a tweener in terms of capital need. Like they only need $5 million, but it's a, you know, a 10 or $15 million top line business. Mm -hmm. Nobody's going to come in and take a $5 million stake. Um, It's not already inside the business. And so we can, we can fill that gap pretty well, but, also, if we are going for like the bigger fundraise, what you know, what we like to do, as long as the business is continuing to warrant additional growth capital, we'll be, we'll write that twenty forty. We led a two hundred million dollar round to one of our businesses at the end of last year, um, and by kind of being around the table already and being able to say, hey, David, here's what we're willing to do, right? You'll either say, hey, that looks great. I don't want to go do a four month, you know, dog and pony, um, trying to get an outside right. provider. We're kicking butt. I want to keep focusing on that. Or you'll say, hey, Austin, I think you're like 25% off market, Um, Mm -hmm. which I'll say, great. Let's partner to go find that guy. or get Right. (laughs) Exactly. And and we like that, too, because, you know, we're already in the business. Um, And so if, if, you know, for, for whatever reason, if we're not, if we're not viewing the, the pricing at a market level, um, we're more than happy Um, because a lot of times especially on the healthcare side like it's great to have you know additional 
kind of smart heads and additional network under the tent as well. Mm-hmm. Right? So we love it when, you know, somebody's coming in kind of a little behind us. Um, yeah. So it's more flexibility. It's a hell of a lot easier to raise money when and negotiate the terms on that money when you already have the cash sitting in your corner. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, healthcare. Been through an interesting cycle over the last couple of years. How are you viewing the market today? Um, because you guys will do service, you'll do SaaS, you'll do tech enabled, and will you do just plain services as well, or do you, does it need to be um, have some there, kind there of platform? Needs to be, there needs to be some sort of technology component, right? It doesn't necessarily have to be proprietary. Um, Got it. Okay. But there needs to be some sort of technology being leveraged that is, you know, making the model more scalable, making it more efficient, making it more cost effective, improving outcomes. Like there has to be something being done. We're not you're not going to see us, you know, as it sits today with the current strategy you have. You're not going to see us, you know, rolling up dental practices. Right. Um, right. Or like problem. a staffing company. Right. There's yeah. got to be. Yeah. If um, you know, enough, we do have we do have a a uh, a staff you know it's a staffing business, but it's more of a marketplace. Yeah, yeah, it's economy. a yeah, it's one of the leader gig economy marketplaces. Yeah. But yeah, that's um okay. So t- so healthcare today, what what, what 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 do you got for me? Give me the hot take. Oh, um, uh, post acute markets going through uh, the house of pain right now. Um, I mean, there's always a cycle going on in healthcare. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just a matter. Healthcare is so big. It's just a matter of who's getting the wood laid to them um, mm-hmm. at what point in time. But post-acute's getting hurt, you know, pretty bad with some of the some of the adjustments to reimbursement, um, which is frankly kind of like scary as a consumer of healthcare. Um, I mean, the the average post-acute facility is like operating at like negative six percent operating margins. Um, you can only do that, you know, for a certain period of time. Um, and uh, it's, it'll, you know, it'll either come out in a couple ways. Either there'll be an adjustment in the market, or there'll be a lot of consolidation, um, and that can be good and bad. Um, that's that's one of the things we're paying a lot of attention to right now. Um, another is, uh, you know, we're we're really big on access to care and care coordination. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of opportunity there. I'm a big believer that. The doctors and you know nurses, all the healthcare providers in our country, are you know educated, trained, licensed, you know to the hilt, you know to the nth degree, <clears throat> and you know so uh, the problem is not probably in the level and quality of medicine being practiced. Right, improvements there are going to be marginal gains. Mm-hmm. It's more about you know what's happening when you and I aren't sitting in front of you know, doctor so-and-so or inside a facility. And so we're really focused on, um, air, you know, business people, you know, folks that are coming up with business models that are more focused on the, <clears throat> the who, the where, and the how mm-hmm. and the when, of when somebody's interacting with the healthcare system, as opposed to like, you know, we need, we need to have better practice of, you know, cardiac care or whatever. Right. <clears throat> Do you have COVID, bro? Did you come on my podcast with COVID? That's why we're doing it virtually. (laughs) 
What are you drinking? Is that like a Mr. Pib? Like, what do you, what, what is that? No light. No light. Okay. Oh, it's a bubbly. Love it. Love it. Fancy. It's a good thing you said that out loud. I forgot that some people would just be listening to this. Yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So post-acute care, getting their teeth kicked in, you know, probably on twofold, not just reimbursements, but from a staffing perspective too. Yeah. Or just getting destroyed. What would, why would Medicare decrease reimbursements for post-acute care? If that's where we're trying to push people out of the hospital. It's a good question. I, to, for the life of me, I haven't, you know, I haven't found somebody that can give me like a real solid answer. Um, or one, or one where I'm like, ah, okay. That makes so much sense. Um, it, it seems to be just kind of like a, well, that was, that's what happened. <laughs> it's like, well, I know that's what happened. Um, yeah. but, um, yeah, no, I, I, I can't for life me. I, I don't really know. Um, but it is one of those things that we're always kind of trying to keep our finger on the pulse of, um, especially if we're ever doing anything and kind of the re- that that's, you know, affected by reimbursement directly. Um, but yeah, it, it's a good question because there is like, you know, you know, there is this big trend right now of trying to push stuff out of the acute setting, right? And there's been an explosion of, you know, what can be done outside the hospital, which is great, right? Right, that's good for us. It's good for the system. Um, so it is kind of a little bit of a head scratcher. Yeah, no, it's so weird because I feel. I don't know if anyone's got it, you know, in insight into that black box and reimbursement, but it's like ambulatory surgery, for instance, you know, what a, a total no brainer for a disruption perspective, taking people out of the hospital, doing minimally invasive stuff. But the reimbursements are so untenable on some of these procedures that, you know, a lot of these companies are still struggling, you know, yet they're like a tenth of the cost of like doing it within the hospital setting. Like, yeah. why do you think there's so much dissonance there? It's a good question. I mean, it go, like, go back in time. Mm-hmm. Hospitals weren't businesses. Right. They were like public utilities mm-hmm. that we've now tried to turn into businesses. You know, I mean, it's in the, you know, it's in the name administrator, <clears throat> right? Right. Like, the, the, key, the key things you're trying to do is keep the lights on, make sure the OR is open, and make sure nobody's getting hurt. So what I mean, like, it just it just seems to me that in a world where banks, real estate companies, Wall Street can get bailed out by a government pretty easily, why a healthcare system that, you know, is running in the red that provides care to people, you know, somehow can't get like, oh, well, no, the reimbursement rates are set. You know, you're gonna have to wait till the new codes come out, you know. (laughs) Meanwhile, no one's making money and everyone's hemorrhaging. Like, how does that, how are we living in that kind of world? That just makes no sense to me. You got everybody's pointing fingers at each other, right? Right. Hospital says it's, you know, the payer and the payer says it's the hospital and the providers like in the middle, like what the heck? Mm -hmm. Um, I think it's, yeah, you've got a situation where you've got, you know, multiple parties involved with incentives that are quite different. Mm hmm. Um, and you know, that's going to lead to inefficiency. 
Um, It's just a matter of who has the most influence at any point in time. (laughs) Um, Well, the government's just getting the government's getting the bill. The things aren't getting any better. And they're just saying, okay, we're just going to lower it. You guys figure it out. Pretty much. Right. Let, let, Let the let the market forces figure it out, which, you know, that's terrifying to hear as a consumer of healthcare. Right, um, like, you know, you, there, there, there's. It doesn't take a lot of googling to come across a lot of terrifying trends right. um, when it comes to healthcare. You know, whether it's the shortage of physicians that we're going to run into, the fact that Medicare's got no money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a whole ball of bad. Yeah, yeah, um, but you know that'll eventually that'll eventually come to a head. In something, and the one thing that we feel really confident about, and so like it's a big focus for us, is whatever we're doing, it better be on the right side of healthcare, which for us is creating value, <clears throat> right? Mm. If you're not in a value-based paradigm, not good. Yeah, you have to be in a situation where. Yeah, you're doing right for the pa- by the patient. You're going on risk, or at least have a line of sight in your narrative to do that. I think uh, you know going through the fee for service, you know, jungle, and just building as much as you can. That 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 playbook is run by the way of the dodo. Yeah, and you can see it like the rise of Medicare Advantage, mm-hmm. right? It, I mean, over half of folks on Medicare on a Medicare Advantage plan now, it's a better model. It aligns everybody, mm-hmm. right? Everyone's kind of pointed in the same direction. So how long does it take for us to extend that model <clears throat> into mm-hmm. more populations? Right, right. Um, yeah, I feel that going into that direction, the Medicare Advantage model makes pretty good sense. I'm not necessarily sure on how well they're actually managing their populations. Um, I think that that could be debatable on, on plans, et cetera, but something's got to change. Something's got to break. And um, how much do you, do you believe in just the markets, you know, turning the tides and, and making things, you know, a little bit more um, feasible? Like, are you seeing any, like, 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 uh, you know, like king making type of companies that can like break a PBM or, you know, like the cost plus models or breaking the insurance companies? Or do you just think that there's just so much regulatory capture that it's not applicable? There's definitely a lot of that. It It's also harder from the standpoint of healthcare doesn't move across state lines mm. perfectly. So it's mm-hmm. kind of hard to like be like you know take take the nation by storm right <laughs> yeah, there's no scale there's no easy scale right yeah it's not like you know uh i i heard from my cousin in virginia that this is happening up there and i'm like well yeah oh, i'm gonna buy that too like right. um unfortunately yeah you've got state level stuff that, that you know like i mean medicaid's different every state you go to right so mm-hmm. um it's not it's not set up in a manner where you can just you don't get that flywheel effect as easily, right? Because um, you can't you can't grow on word of mouth. Um, you got to make sure you're checking all the boxes every time you move across another 
another line. Um, so, I mean, I think there's a lot of promise in a lot of this stuff. And the thing is, is like, I mean, the healthcare segment is enormous. If you fold services, drug spend into it, right? So, like, you don't have to cross. Um, you don't have to take the nation by storm to mm-hmm. have a really, really large impact and outcome. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, as an example, we've got a business up in Minnesota that is focused on the 18 to 64 Medicaid population mm-hmm. that's on waivers. Um, we have to take that model out of Minnesota and go state by state with it. Mm-hmm. It's going it's to be, be a, a lot nicer if we didn't have to do it like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, 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 you know, the impact that we're having on the population that we serve is, like, awesome. And the state's loving it. Like, but, um, but, yeah, it's not as simple as, like, okay, yeah, let's drive, you know, <laughs> 100 miles south of Minneapolis and set up shop in Iowa. Mm-hmm. Um, you got to go through all the, all the hoops. How do you think about capital needs and capitalizing companies and the, the level of outcomes that a lot of these healthcare companies have? Because, you know, tech-enabled services don't get valued as high as SaaS. And then when, you know, the pure play SaaS in healthcare, usually you get restricted by TAM at some point, right? So how do you think about returns and capitalization with or investing in the early stage? Um on the early stage, I think it's really important from the investor side to be really, really sober about what is the immediate opportunity ahead of me mm-hmm. and how fast can this thing grow organically. I mean, one of the things that's so attractive, like, why is everybody obsessed with SaaS as, you know, <laughs> as an investment? <laughs> like, as mm-hmm. an investment. It's not because, it, it, I mean, at least my understanding, it's not because software is just super cool. Right. It's because, you know, 80% of every dollar you make can be reinvested in earning another dollar. Right. Um, and, and so as long as you're not, you're not walking into tech-enabled services with that assumption, right, and you're really looking at it as like, okay, no, only 50% or 45 or 55 or maybe 60 if you're really really Mm -hmm. ripping the cover off the ball of every dollar gets reinvested. And I need to be thinking like that. And I need to make sure that the other parts of my operating expense line don't get over bloated. Mm -hmm. Uh, It works. But we went through this period of time where people were like, Oh yeah, it's just like SAS. Dude. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it was like, Oh yeah, no, but it's not. Yeah. <laughs> and oh, yeah. by the way, and then like people, and then like the most interesting thing is when people are, I'm talking to somebody that's, you know, it's a novel care delivery model, right? So there's actually care getting delivered. <clears throat> and they're like, and we think we can get our margins to 70%. And I'm like, well, somebody's losing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. Right. Never going to happen. Right. Like if, if that's what it requires for you to get profitable, then we need to like rethink about, you know, the model because, you know, yes, you need to be making a margin. But if you're making 70 percent margin on labor, that means the system's overpaying. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and they're and that. And, and yeah. And that's short term. Like that's eventually. Yeah. 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 Right. It, if there's one thing that, you know, I'd say CMS is good at. <laughs> for sure it's sniffing out something that's not uh not uh on the up and up <laughs> right right um 
And, and, and so it's like, as opposed to like trying to make tech-enabled services look like software, it's like, no, let's just treat it you know, for what it is. It's still a good business model, right? If you're creating value for people and you're doing it in an efficient manner that allows you to drop 40 to 60% of your revenue, then that, that can work. Right. right? The, dollars, the dollars are bigger, right? Because um, to your right, on the healthcare IT side, um, if, if you are charging like a provider group, a license fee, there's only so many providers, they're under pressure, um, mm-hmm. on the reimbursements. So like, that's tough. Right. And so like, we've got, we've got businesses that sell into you know software in the post acute space and it's tough. Um, right. And it happens across the board, regardless of what segment, whether it's post-acute, acute, ambulatory. Right. You're dealing, you know, everyone's been burned by software vendors. And I guess the upside on the services or the tech-enabled services side is it's baked in. The cost is baked in. It's, you know, it's healthcare. People are, are going to need prostate surgery, you know, of some, you know, regardless of how the economy is going up or down or the interest rates yep. are affecting Right. Yeah. No. And that's so there, there's a, a decreased a decreased risk when you're investing in a healthcare tech enabled service because there's an analog, like a direct analog, for what you're doing. Right. There's an existing market for mm-hmm. this. Right. You've just you as the entrepreneur or the, the management team has come up with a new business model, a business innovation, or a tech innovation that's allowing you to do it in a more efficient or scalable manner. Um, so as the investor, you're not having to sit there and be like, huh, yeah. I hope to use this. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm not just throwing darts on the wall. Um, but, but then, yeah, again, you, you touched on it, right? Services have a lower multiple, as they should. They don't, they're not as, they're not as efficient. Um, so you, that just has, that's just, you have to go in with like a full view. Right. Yeah, full view, entry price matters probably more than anything. And just realize that you just can't burn irresponsibly, right? Like there's got to be, you really need to, you know, understand your gross margin and your cost structure and, you know, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. Yeah, it, it, was, it was like interesting seeing all of the, the direct-to-consumer stuff happen um, because, you know, it... It's it's a weird thing, right? Because they actually have to acquire customers. Oh God, yeah, right. And traditional healthcare services, you don't have to acquire customers, right? You go in network, mm-hmm. and then people just show up and say, you know, help me. That's um, nice. <laughs> you know, well, like. well, it's funny. It's this like it's this like it completely uh, led to like the the wasting away of, of a physician having, you know, muscle or a physician practice having muscle around, you know, customer acquisition or because it's like the easy button, you go in network <coughs> and people show up. The caveat is that once you're on the, you know, once you're on the smack, um, that can, you know, now, now the, the insurance Company says, "Well, you know what? We think we're going to pay you less next year." Well, yeah. if you're completely reliant on being a network to generate patient flow, you're kind of like, "Okay, that stinks." 
I'll yeah. try my best. <laughs> um, it, yeah, it's it's a bizarre bizarre situation. But so then the, the direct consumer groups, right? They got to overcome that, but they're competing with the pricing and everything that's based off of you know zero dollar customer acquisition. Right. That's tough. Yeah, it's not a good luck. Austin, thank you so much for coming down. I really appreciate it, um, dude. Take. Get like a cough drop, man. I, I'm, I'm worried about you. I, I'm, I'm definitely going to get some of that Dayquil going over here. <laughs> Dude, I love being high on cough syrup during, during work. It's like my favorite. Get Delsum. <laughs> yeah, it tastes good, and it gives you like a level of high that um, just makes you think of things, things, things in a different way. But anyway... Um, Everybody, thank you so much for tuning into the Capital Stack, where I talk to founders, entrepreneurs, and investors. If you like it, please subscribe, tell a friend, and we'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye-bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Capital Stack Podcast. Make sure to share this with someone you know that can benefit from this content. Remember to support this show by rating, reviewing, and subscribing. David Paul is the founder and general partner at DWP Capital. All opinions expressed by David and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of DWP Capital. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. David and guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed on this podcast.